Welcome to Crime, Corruption, and Cocktails, the true crime podcast where we look at cases of corruption and negligence and examine their historical and cultural implications. Today, I'm drinking a tequila sunrise. What do you have, Del? I am drinking a strawberry margarita. And on this week's episode, we will be looking at the mass murders committed by university professor Amy Bishop. Amy Bishop was said to be a highly intelligent and motivated person who needed constant admiration and recognition from her peers and supervisors alike, and this all led to deadly consequences. Let's start with looking at the background of Amy Bishop. Bishop was born on April 24, 1965. She grew up in Massachusetts and was married with four children. She eventually went on to earn a PhD in genetics from Harvard University. Her research interests include induction of adaptive resistance to nitric oxide in the central nervous system and utilization of motor neurons for the development of neural circuits grown on biological computer chips. An anonymous source at Harvard stated that Bishop's work was of poor quality and undeserving of a doctoral degree, calling it quote-unquote local scandal number one. In 1986, at the age of 21, Bishop fatally shot her 18-year-old brother, Seth, at their home in Braintree, Massachusetts. Bishop fired two shots from a 12-gauge pump-action shotgun. One went into her bedroom wall, and then one went into her brother's chest. Later, she pointed the gun at a moving vehicle on the adjacent road and tried to get into the vehicle. Bishop and her mother told the police that the shooting happened in accident. Police found a live round in the gun's chamber, meaning that Bishop must have racked its side after shooting her brother, which shows that she intended to fire again. After a brief inquiry into the incident by the Massachusetts State Police in 1986, they repeated the Braintree Police Department's initial assessment that the shooting had been accidental. Norfolk County District Attorney Bill Delahunt, later elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, did not file charges, did not file charges against Bishop for this incident. Detailed records of the shooting had disappeared by 1988. Braintree Police Chief Paul Frazier said on February 13, 2010, quote, the report's gone, removed from the files, end quote. Bishop joined the faculty of University of Alabama at Huntsville Department of Biological Sciences as an assistant professor in 2003. Bishop was also a member of the Hamilton Writers Group while living in Ipswich, Massachusetts in the late 1990s and was said to believe that writing would be, quote, her ticket out of academia, end quote. Members of the club said that she would, quote, frequently cite her Harvard degree and family ties to Irving to boost her credential as a serious writer, end quote. Another member described her as smart but abrasive in her interactions and as feeling, quote-unquote, entitled to praise. Bishop did have a literary agent, although she had not published any books. Despite her clear intelligence, pressures created cracks in her mental state. 
Several colleagues had expressed concern over Bishop's behavior. She was described as interrupting meetings with, quote, bizarre tangents, left field kind of stuff, being, quote, unquote, strange and notably, quote, unquote, crazy. One of these colleagues was a member of Bishop's tenure review committee. After her tenure was denied and she learned that this colleague referred to her as quote-unquote crazy, Bishop filed a complaint with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, the EEOC, alleging sex discrimination, citing the professor's remarks to be used as possible evidence. The professor did not retract his comments. The EEOC noted, quote, the professor was given the opportunity to back off the claim or say it was a flippant remark, but he didn't. And the professor said, quote, I said she was crazy multiple times and I stand by that. This woman has a pattern of erratic behavior. She did things that weren't normal. She was out of touch with reality, end quote. Bishop was reportedly a poor instructor and unpopular among her students. She dismissed several graduate students from her lab and others sought transfers out. In 2009, several UAH students said they complained to administrators about Bishop on at least three occasions saying she was, quote, ineffective in the classroom and had odd, unsettling ways, end quote. As explained by Williams, the university president, after Bishop was denied tenure in March 2009, she could not expect to have her teaching contract renewed after March 2010. She appealed the decision to UAH's administration. Without reviewing the content of the tenure application, they determined that the process was carried out according to policy and denied the appeal. Bishop's husband said the denial of tenure had been, quote unquote, an issue in recent months and described the tenure process as, quote, a long, basically hard fight, end quote. He said that it was understanding that Bishop, quote, exceeded the qualifications for tenure, end quote, and that she was distressed at the likelihood of losing her position, barring a successful appeal. She approached members of the University of Alabama System's Board of Trustees and hired a lawyer who was, quote, finding one problem after another with the process, end quote. One point of dispute was whether two of her papers had been published in time to count toward tenure. Bishop, who gave more weight to obtaining patents rather than publishing papers, reportedly received several warnings that she needed to publish more to receive tenure. February 12, 2010 started as a normal day. Amy Bishop taught her anatomy and neurosciences class. A student later stated Bishop, quote unquote, seemed perfectly normal during the lecture. Another student reportedly heard a loud sound as Bishop's bag hit the table as she entered the classroom. Bishop then attended a biology department faculty meeting on the third floor of the Shelby Center for Science and Technology. According to witnesses, 12 or 13 people attended the meeting, which was described as, quote-unquote, an ordinary faculty meeting. She sat quietly at the meeting for 30 or 40 minutes before pulling out a Ruger P95 9mm handgun just before 4 p.m. A witness said that Bishop, quote, got up suddenly, took out a gun, and started shooting at each one of us. She started with the one closest to her and went down the row shooting her targets in the head, end quote. Another survivor said, quote, this wasn't a random shooting around the room. This was execution style, end quote. Those who were shot were on one side of the oval table. The five on the other side dropped to the floor. After Bishop had fired several rounds, Deborah Morietti, a biochemistry professor, said that she pointed the gun at her and pulled the trigger, 
but heard only a quote-unquote click as her gun, quote, either jammed or ran out of ammunition, end quote. She described Bishop as initially appearing, quote-unquote, angry, then, quote-unquote, perplexed. The suspected murder weapon was found in a bathroom on the second floor of the science building. Bishop did not have a permit to carry a concealed weapon. She was arrested a few minutes later outside the building. Shortly after her arrest, Bishop was quoted as saying, quote, it didn't happen. There's no way, end quote. When asked about the deaths of her colleagues, Bishop replied, quote, there's no way. They're still alive, end quote. Three UAH faculty members died as a result of the shooting. Department Chair Gopi Badilla, Maria Davis, and Adriel Johnson Sr. Louis Vera, Joseph Leahy, and Stephanie Monticilio survived their wounds. Bishop was charged with one count of capital murder and three counts of attempted murder. Prosecutors said almost from the outset that they would seek the death penalty. According to state law regarding sentencing for capital murder, Bishop was eligible for either the death penalty or life in prison. On June 18th, two days after Bishop was indicted for the murder of her brother in a reopened case, she attempted suicide in a Huntsville jail. She survived and was treated at a hospital and then returned to jail. Her husband complained that authorities did not inform him of the incident. In November 2010, survivors Leahy and Monticello filed lawsuits against Bishop and Anderson to recover damages. In January 2011, attorneys representing Davis's and Johnson's families filed wrongful death lawsuits against Bishop Anderson and UAH. In September 2011, Bishop pleaded not guilty by means of the insanity defense. On September 24, 2012, Bishop was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole after being found guilty on all charges. Norfolk County declined to seek her extradition for the murder of her brother, Seth. Bishop stated through her Massachusetts lawyer that she wanted to be tried for her brother's death in order to vindicate herself. Jenny, what are your thoughts on Amy Bishop and the UAH shooting? I have actually never heard of this before, Del, so thank you for bringing it to my attention and other people's attention. I think that there were definitely a lot of warning signs that Amy displayed, not necessarily that a mass shooting was about to occur, but that she needed help. She seemed off. It seems like tons of people would agree with that statement to people that interacted with her personally. I do think her mom and her husband let her get away with things and maybe just looked the other way. I don't think she accidentally shot her brother, especially if she was going to be going after other people. And I'm really curious if the police knew, led up what was going on in both of their lives before this quote unquote accidental shooting occurred. There were other times Amy had like angry, sort of violent outbursts too at different restaurants and her husband, I don't want to say he didn't seem to care, but I think they wanted her to get anger management afterward. And he said he didn't think it was necessary. And he seemed really shocked in interviews by the shooting. But it seemed like a lot of stuff was in place for Amy Bishop to have a mental breakdown or have like a really big outburst of some sort. And unfortunately, three people died because of it. And I think we're really lucky that more people didn't die. You know, what really stopped her from going out into the campus and shooting at more people? 
just because it's really upsetting and a really it's an interesting case because like I said, I think there are so many warning signs and it's not a bizarre reason, but tenure I think is a really difficult thing to get, but we've never I've never heard of someone committing a crime in the name of getting tenure or being upset about tenure. What about you? I definitely agree with you. I think this case is interesting because like you were speaking to was that it had so many warning signs and so many people that could have stepped in to change the course of what was going to happen. And I do think that her husband had at least a minimal level of just complacency with the situation. There were allegations that Amy and her husband sent letter bombs as well. It was never solved, so the husband was never charged. But people were saying during that incident that it seemed like Amy was going to have a nervous breakdown and that her husband was also saying things that were out of pocket and what he wanted to do with someone that he felt had maligned his wife. And there are some reports around this case that after the shooting, Amy actually called her husband to pick her up. And the reason why she was caught was because they had failed to communicate exactly where to pick her up on campus. She had went out a side door and he had went to where he would regularly pick her up. And so since they couldn't meet each other, that's why she was caught by the police. And if that's true, then he definitely should have some sort of charges brought up against them because who knows what have happened if it was a situation where she was able to get away still in this sort of increased emotional state and they figure out a way to get her gun to start working or if they had other guns, like you never know what happens in that situation. I agree with you. I definitely don't think that the shooting of her brother, Seth, was an accident. There were reports that there were family drama going on and that they had some issues with each other. But obviously, no level of family drama rises to you shooting um, someone with a 12-gauge shotgun in their chest and then continuing to be a menace to other people by shooting at random cars on the road. So. I definitely think that she got fair and just punishment in this case. Luckily, there is no possibility of parole, which I've been noticing in a lot of the cases that we've been covering. That hasn't been the case. There's always the chance that they could get out. But luckily for this individual, she will not leave jail unless it's in a pine box. Damn. (laughs) So when looking at this case, one thing that was really interesting was the different ways that Amy Bishop was described. And so because of that, we wanted to dive into the four categories that people who commit murders can be placed into. The Federal Bureau of Investigation or the FBI lists them as serial killer, spree killer, mass murderer, and contract killer. And we're going to look at the differences between them and if those differences actually matter. The one most people are likely the most familiar with is the serial killer. A serial killer can be defined as a person who kills more than three people with the murders having more than a month between them, which is often called a cooling off period. 
there are some definitions that lower or increase the number of murders, but the FBI lists it as three uh, people. The motivation is typically to satisfy some abnormal psychological affliction or to gain some abnormal psychological gratification. Historical criminologists suggest that there have been serial killers throughout history. Some sources suggest that legends such as werewolves and vampires were inspired by medieval serial killers. The serial killing phenomenon in the United States was especially prominent from 1970 to 2000, which has been described as the quote-unquote golden age of serial murder. The number of active serial killers in the country peaked in 1989 and has since been steadily trending downwards. The cause of this spike in serial killing has been attributed to urbanization, which puts people in close proximity and offers some level of anonymous interactions. Mike Amute, professor at Radford University in Virginia, attributes the decline in the number of serial killings to less frequent use of parole, improved forensic technology, and people behaving more cautiously. Some examples of serial killers include Jack the Ripper, Ted Bundy, the Zodiac Killer, Jeffrey Dahmer, Eileen Warnels, and John Wayne Gacy. And we have covered many of these individuals on the podcast and we'll continue to look at the different serial killers that have operated within the United States and worldwide. The next category is the mass murderer. A mass murderer is someone who murders people in a short period of time in close geographic proximity. The FBI's definition is killing more than four people in a short period of time with no cooling off period. No matter which number of victims someone uses to define a mass murder, the detail that sets it apart from other categories is that the murder typically takes place in one distinct location. Terrorism is a major part of this category, with many terrorist organizations using mass murder as a way to attack their enemies. Mass murderers may be categorized in different categories, including killers of family, co-workers, of students, and of random strangers. Their motives vary. One motivation for mass murder is revenge, but other motivations are possible, including the need for attention or fame. Some examples are 9-11, the Jonestown Massacre, the 2005 London bombing, and the Ugandan Massacre. Amy Bishop would be included in this category based on the broader definition. The third category is a spree killer, and spree killers are someone who committed two or more murders in distinct geographical locations. The U.S. Bureau of Justice Statistics defines a spree killing as, quote, killings at two or more locations with almost no break between murders, end quote. Rampage killer is another name that may be used to describe the same criminal actions of a spree killer. The motivation varies with spree killing, however, it is usually tied with some sort of break in mental capacity, revenge, or seeking attention. Some examples include Andrew Cunanan, the Edmond postal shooting, which helped give rise to the term quote-unquote going postal to describe spree killings, Jennifer San Marco, and Charles Starkweather. The last category is the contract killer. Contract killing is a form of murder in which the last category is the contract killer. Contract killing is a form of murder in which one party pays another to commit an act of murder or assassination. Many people know those who commit contract killings as a hitman. 
Contract killing has been associated with organized crime, government conspiracies, dictatorships, and vendettas. Contract killing provides the hiring party with the advantage of not having to carry out the actual killing, making it more difficult for law enforcement to connect the hirer with the murder. The likelihood that authorities will establish the party's guilt for the committed crime, especially due to lack of forensic evidence linked to the contracting party, makes the case more difficult to attribute to the hiring party. Contract killers may exhibit serial killer traits, but are generally not classified as such because of the third-party killing objectives and detached financial and emotional incentives. Contract killings generally make up a very small percentage of murders. The most common reason for murder for hire was insurance policy payout. A study in Australia found that the payouts vary from $5,000 to $30,000 per killing with an average of $15,000 and that the most commonly used weapon was a firearm. Some examples of contract killers include Bugsy Siegel, Patrick Holland, Alexander Zolanik, and Richard Kalinsky, who was known as the Iceman and is stated to be responsible for over 200 murders. How to distinguish a spree killer from a mass murderer or from a serial killer is subject is subject to considerable debate and the terms are not consistently applied even within academic literature. Douglas wrote that the identity of a serial killer is generally unknown until they are caught and a mass murderer's identity is learned only after they've committed the crime. The identity of the spree killer, on the other hand, usually becomes known by police while the spree is still in progress. Jenny, what are your thoughts on all of this, and do you think that the different categories matter or are helpful? I think it's interesting that some historical criminologists link like stories of vampires and werewolves to medieval serial killers. I have never heard that before, and that's so fascinating to me. But I would say I think it does and it doesn't matter to categorize people. I'm sure it's helpful for the police to categorize these crimes because there are similar behavior patterns. You can, I guess, with serial killers, maybe tell the public what to look out for in a way. There's definitely some similar psychology among certain types of killers too. And within the legal system, it's definitely helpful to coming up with charges and sentencing, especially I think when it comes to hired killers, contract killings, I think it's definitely helpful for the legal system too, when it comes to the different categories to come up with charges and proper sentencing. For the general public, I don't really know if it matters too much how serial killers are categorized, mainly because at the end of the day, they are killing someone, they're taking someone's life away, it's just motivated by something different. But I also think that that motivation is where these categories come into play and why it is so important. So maybe that's like a little bit of a non-answer. But I think, yeah, in some regards, like, it's helpful and important. But in other regards, I don't think it's as important. What do you think? I definitely agree with you where it's a mixed bag because on one hand, I do see the usefulness. If there is a active killer, knowing whether they are a spree killer, which means you need to have kind of like a heightened, I don't want to say this, 
like knowing that it's a spree killer, I think is useful because it's an active crime spree going on. And so you would want the public's involvement if they see them so they can be reported and their crime spree can be stopped. But also we would do that with anything. So do we need a name for that is the question. And I think that it's more important to know who the killer is targeting so that those people can have a heightened sensitivity than what we're actually calling it. So, for example, if you have Ted Bundy versus Jeffrey Dahmer, right? They're both serial killers. We will put them in the same category. But who they were targeting was so distinct. And the populations that needed to look out for them were so distinct. And I think that made much more of a difference, especially since we're lopping them into one group. I also think that when it comes to mass murderers, a lot of times, especially when it comes to terrorism or other acts of like going postal, a lot of times there are no warning signs. We hear this all the time where, especially when it comes to like the postal shootings, school shootings is also in that category. People always say like, well, we, we didn't expect it from this person. We're so shocked. So it's like, does it really matter that we're calling them a mass murderer? Like, I don't think it matters. I think the police need to have a distinction. And like you said, the criminal justice system may want to separate them out. But at the end of the day, if you look at the actual charges that are levied in any of these cases, they're all the same. Like, they're all first-degree murder cases All of them typically carry a capital sentence if that is something that is legal within the system that this person's being prosecuted in. I think that it's probably, I don't don't want to shit on true crime podcasts, but. (laughs) No, it's, it's definitely like an issue of like ethics, I would say. Yeah, like I think it's more of a situation of the public loves labels. We do a true crime podcast. We have definitely talked about the different categories that murderers that we have spoken about would fall into. We did it at the beginning of this episode as well. I think that while it may not be useful or helpful in any way for us to have separate categories, in our mind, we have created these distinctions. And I don't think it's thing of saying that one group is more evil or anything like that. It's just that in our minds, we have separated out someone like Jim Jones from someone like Ted Bundy. They're both murderers. Their lives in very similar ways where as a result of their actions and the result of their manias, they both died. Jim Jones self-inflicted, Ted Bundy executed by the state. I think that the only thing, the only label that may matter is, I think that the only category that I would probably keep is contract killer because of how distinct it is from the others. And because it pulls in someone who didn't actually commit the crime. And so that has so many different ramifications when you have things like conspiracy to commit murder and just some separate charges that you don't see with other categories. I agree with you about the contract killing. I think that is the 
most, I don't know, complex or nuanced of the others that we talked about, just because of the added layer of someone requesting services. And there has to be a thorough plan in place. You don't just decide, oh, I'm going to hire a contract killer, just do whatever you want. And then the person's dead in less than 24 hours. It's a lot. How do you get connected to this person too? But I wanted to say, I think that's a really interesting point you're making with how we as people like to label things. And I wonder if labeling this person a mass murderer or a serial killer or whatever is maybe some type of like coping mechanism too, where it makes something to make us feel safer as a a person. I don't know. I would be interested to hear a little bit more about that. That's an interesting point that I hadn't considered. It could be from a safety perspective, because if you know someone is a mass murderer, you do feel a sense of that was an isolated incident. Like this big thing happened. And while I may need to be worried about another mass murderer doing something, I don't need to worry about this individual doing anything again. And it's the same thing when a serial killer or spree killer is caught as well. It's like, okay, this is a serial killer. I'm safe because they're behind bars. I think the psychology that goes into contract killing makes it your safety concern is more of a distrust that you develop in other people because you start to wonder who has motivation to want someone to hire someone to kill someone else what are the financial motives that may go into it as we look at like the different examples of contract killers you do have like the mob connected ones of course and it's trying to build up a mob empire but the most common motive is insurance payout. And I know you've heard and I've heard tons of stories of like spouses hiring someone to come in and kill their significant other for the insurance payout. Or that's also like a common trope in movies and in television. Like, oh, the contract killer is going to come in. And like, how do you protect yourself against that? Like, how do you build a safe environment when you're constantly thinking like, oh, does someone have a motive and the financial means to hire someone to kill me? I think also with safety is that, especially within the United States, I think that contract killing or just having a hitman has been glamorized in a way where it's like something cool. Like there's a whole video game franchise, which I have played that is centered around you being a hitman and being hired to go out and commit these crimes and the other types of killings don't have that. So it's a weird thing. But I agree with you that safety is definitely a reason why people may feel more comfortable putting a label on a particular type of killer. The contract killing is really like what gets me. We'll have to do an ep- Have we done a contract killing episode? I don't think so, but I do, did want to do one on the Iceman. Yeah, I think I remember seeing that. Yeah, we should definitely do that soon. During the investigation into why this shooting happened, many speculated that Amy was mentally imbalanced due to her genius not being respected and the accolades that she expected to come to her were not being realized. Amy is not the only so-called genius to resort to becoming a menace to society. 
And the first one we'll talk about is John Christie. In the 1940s and 50s, John Christie murdered at least eight women, including his own wife. He was a gifted mathematician and had an IQ of 128. In order to lure women, he posed as an abortionist. When women would come to him with unwanted pregnancies, he would knock them out with cooking gas. He stored their bodies at his home on 10 Rillington Place, Notting Hill, London. It has become a house of horrors. One notable murder committed by Christie was the murder of Burl and Geraldine Evans. Christie murdered them and then framed Timothy Evans. Evans was eventually executed for the crime at the age of 24. His wrongful execution led to capital punishment being suspended in 1965 in the United Kingdom. Next, we have Charlene Gallego. Charlene was a shy and highly intelligent student who had an IQ of 160. Her intelligence did not help her in her romantic life, and she unfortunately had two failed marriages before marrying Gerald Gallego. Together, they terrorized young women. They abducted women at gunpoint and kidnapped them using their van. They would sexually torture the women and kill them via gunshot or strangulation. The couple was caught when, during an attempted abduction, their license plate was seen by a neighbor. Charlene was given a 16-year sentence and is now living life as Charlene Williams. She was allowed to take a plea agreement where she testified against Gerald. Gerald was given the death sentence and he died in prison in 2002. They were in uh, Sacramento. The next genius killer we have is Carol Cole. Carol had an IQ of 152 and many believed his life should have turned out differently. His first murder was that of a classmate who he drowned in a lake. People believed that it was an accident, so he was never charged for this murder. He started out with minor theft and escalated to targeting couples in their cars. After one incident where he confessed to having fantasies of strangling women, he was placed in an institution. After three years, he was found fit for release, despite being diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder. Over a period of nine years, he murdered at least 14 women. He was executed for his crimes in 1985. The final person we're going to look at is Rodney Akala. With an IQ of 170, Akala ranks as one of the most intelligent serial killers. He is also known as the dating show killer due to his 1978 appearance on the dating show. Akala murdered five women between 1977 and 1979 in California and an additional two people in New York. Akala compiled a collection of more than 1,000 photographs of women, teenage girls, and boys, many in sexually explicit poses. In 2016, he was charged with the 1977 murder of a woman identified in one of his photos. In March 2010, the Huntington Beach, California, and New York City Police Departments released 120 of Akala's photographs and sought the public's help in identifying them in hopes of determining if any of the women and children he photographed were additional victims. Approximately 900 additional photos could not be made public, police said, because they were too sexually explicit. Akala is known to have assaulted one other photographic subject, and police have speculated that others could have been rape or murder victims as well. Prosecutors have said that Akala quote-unquote toyed with his victims, strangling them until they lost consciousness, then waited until they revived, sometimes repeating this process several times before killing them. 
Akala was sentenced to death in California for those murders and received additional time in other locations across the United States for other crimes, including in New York. Rodney Akala died in prison on July 24, 2021. There we go. Jenny, what are your thoughts on these cases of murderers who have high IQs? It's interesting that a lot of these seem to have like an element of torture within them. I do think to a degree to be a serial killer and to get away with it for so long, you need a degree of intelligence. And I'm not saying like every serial killer is the smartest person in the room. I think many think they are, even if they aren't. But it's definitely upsetting because you'd think someone with like such a high IQ would maybe know better. Or not be more empathetic, but you think they would know better. I do wonder if that intelligence, like people were speculating with Amy Bishop, if it caused her to somehow to be like mentally unwell because she wasn't getting what she thought she deserved, which is so ridiculous to say. But some people really can't handle that. And again, thinking you're the smartest person in the room and wanting to be treated that way. I'm sure we've all encountered people like that in our lives and they're so difficult to deal with. And I'm sure for some people it's just too much. And hey, if you want to get recognized for your intelligence, like I guess this is one way to be recognized for your intelligence or for something that you're doing, even if it is deplorable and upsetting and immoral. What do you think? I definitely agree with you. And I think that It's always connected to the unrealized promise that people typically have of those individuals that have a higher IQ. And I do want to know that as we talk about this, obviously there are issues with how IQ is calculated. And we're not saying that that is a determining factor in everyone's life and that it's the most important thing. But it is interesting to see how many killers have been evaluated and seen to have a higher IQ. I think that for Amy Bishop, it was definitely connected to her feeling that she wasn't getting her due. And I think that was connected to her being told repeatedly, you're a genius. You know, you're so intelligent. You can do this. You can do that. And when those things didn't happen, she's like, who do I blame for this? It's not my fault. I need to find someone else to blame. And unfortunately, three people lost their lives due to that in the Amy Bishop case, and across all of these, it's probably over 100 people just that we've talked about. And of course, there's other killers who have been known to have a high IQ, uh, such as Ted Bundy, for example. While I don't know if there's any real connection between having a high IQ and whether you are more or less likely to get away with criminal offense, I definitely agree with you where they think they're going to get away with it. They think they are the smartest person in the room. But I mean, just from the fact that we know your names means that you weren't as smart as you thought you were. And luckily in these cases and many other cases, someone thinking that they're going to get away with a crime didn't actually materialize. And a lot of these people were either sentenced to execution or they were executed for their crimes. I would be interested in any type of research into the kind of like the outcomes, like long-term outcomes of people that's been 
determined to have a high IQ in childhood. That wraps up this week's case. Thank you for listening. Let us know in the comments what you think about the murders committed by Amy Bishop. You can read more about this case and how to support us in the links below. We will be back next week with an episode focused on the Gardner Museum heist. As always, stay safe.